history lecture number 31, Rabbi Blyweis. Chizkyo um, Amelech was almost Mashiach, didn't work out that way. Um, I encourage you, those of you who missed this yesterday, get, get the recordings. You can be, again, I can't tell you enough, and I, I keep repeating myself anyway, but you, the history is really thrilling when you're in the whole, you get the whole picture, the whole narrative arc of it. So um, we mentioned that Chizkyo had this famous uh, father-in-law, and we've been talking about him for some time. His name is Yeshaya, otherwise known as Yeshayahu ben Amotz. He is sometimes ranked, according to the Medrash at least, as the second greatest Navi of all time, uh, unequaled except for Moshe Rabbeinu. Others might put Shmuel up there on the list. I don't know if we have to do the People magazine, great, you know, a countdown of greatest, of greatest prophets. It doesn't quite work that way, but he certainly was up there. Um, if, you wanna, if, you're, if you want more superlatives about Yeshaya, he has, without any close competition, by far the most Haftaras. Uh, we read his. We read from his sefer as Haftarah, as we just did, and we'll continue to do. We just did all summer long because uh, all of all of the um, the comforting Haftarahs that we read are from Yeshaya, uh, more than any other uh, book in the in the Tanakh. Um, he came from the tribe of Yehuda, and that makes sense then to say that his father was actually royalty. Was Amotz Amatzia himself? Um, excuse me. His father was an Amotz, but his 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 father Amotz. Oh, oh, excuse me, his father Amots, some say was, 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 was the king, others say that Amots was Amatsia's brother. Um, either way you have it, it made him, this is the Gemara and Megillah, it made him a regular in the uh, king's court. And that's why, I mean, he himself had connections with king, he prophesied, his prophecy coincided with the rule of four kings. Um, over a course of 60 years, he, um, he knew Uziyahu, that's, that's uh, Azariah, the son of Amatsia. He knew Yosam, Ahaz, the Russia, and of course his own son-in-law, Chizkiyahu. Um, he knew, he wasn't a prophet during the reign of, of, his, of his grandson, Menashe, but he certainly knew his grandson, Menashe, uh, very well, um, as, we'll see, as we'll see shortly enough today as well. The, um, What's that? Sure, because his daughter Hefziva was Mrs. Chizkiyahu. So yes, his grandson. Initially, when he got his calling as Navi, Hashem called to him saying, Mi Eshlach, who, the Medrash says, should I send to talk to the Jews, to give them what all the Navim give them, tochocha, rebuke, warning, words of inspiration, always with an eye towards what can we do to elevate this, uh, this uh, people who have difficulties, and Yeshaya famously answers him, Hineni, Shalcheni, he says, Here I am, which is a word uh, which means Zrizus, as we find in this week's parsha, where Avamavino by the Akeda says, Hineni, here I am at your disposal, whatever I can do, Hashem. So Yeshaya demonstrates similar Zrizus, Shalcheni, send me. But then he adds, Of course, uh, you know, it's your choice, Hashem. I, for the record, am unclean, so if you choose to send me anyway, please, but I'm unclean, and he adds, and I live with an unclean people. Immediately after that declaration, an angel, Hashem sends an angel flying down with a big searing coal that he puts in the mouth of the young prophet, of the young prophet-to-be. Um, you don't speak that way against my people. I'm, I'm, I'm unclean, even though he included himself. It's not like he's, he's casting aspersions and saying, I'm better than them. No, I'm unclean and I dwell with an unclean people. 
but we don't speak that way. Anyway, we don't air our dirty laundry in public, even to Akadish Baruch Hu himself, uh, and even though he includes, Tzadik includes himself in the criticism. Yeah, Jake? In the Habitimation. Also, right, right. So Yeshaya should have learned he didn't. Um, he is, he doesn't hold back. He's harsh. He's harsh, and his harshness, and this is, I'm continuing uh, the theme here, that um, his harshness, you know why the Tanakh often reads with searing, difficult, harsh words, that's reflecting of the high level of Klal Yisrael during these times. If we were on a lower level, we couldn't take it, kind of like our generation. You know, our generation, the general approach of many rabbis, leaders, <coughs> teachers, and such, is to be gentle, kiruvi, come on, people, is what I was speaking about on my, in, in a different class on Sunday. Come on, please be shomeridia. You'll be so happy if you do, kind of a kind of approach to Judaism. That sucks. It's also not quite emistic. No, it's not I mean, that, please, oh, pretty, please be shomeridia. It's simply that's the halacha. No, I mean, the way they're... I know, but, but they have to speak to our generation. Our generation is so soft and sensitive. Every little thing is, offends us. You know, we're so, we're so, we're, 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 we have such, such weak self-esteem, so they can't lay into it. So in contrast, the people of the times of the first temple, Klal Yisrael as, as, as a general rule, were on an extreme, extremely high level. And that's why the Navi can blast them, let them have it, and they said, oh, okay, we'll change. Great. That, that's what, that's what, how we're meant to understand this. Uh, the Gemara Yoma says it this way, the fingernail of the older generations was better than the belly of the later generations. That's a very strange comparison. It is, and go it. you could look it up in the Gemara, it's a test Amun Beis in Yuma. The fingernail of the older generations is superior to the belly of the later generations. Pashup the simple way of understanding it is something as significant as the belly of the later generations you think was on a higher level, but no, even the little fingernail of the early generations was, was, was something far beyond all of us. On fingernail the tummy, something even... Interesting, interesting, you want to darshan it. Okay, you might be on to something. Even something that tummy is greater than the later generations. Right. To his, yeah, very good. To his credit, Yeshaya, in response to this getting, you know, getting this coal on his mouth, um, makes tshuva, and Hashem later on, and he makes tshuva gemura because Hashem later on praises Yeshaya and says, "No one loved my children, Banai, more than Yeshaya Hanavi." So that a man who started his career criticizing unnecessarily the Jewish people will come to have an immense Avos Yisrael love of the Jews. Uh, we've seen a lot about Yeshaya, um, his prophecies. He's a difficult safer, like many of the Nevi'im are difficult safers. They're non-narrative books, so sometimes you get lost in the in the in the um, intricate language and metaphors, and they don't usually a little bit of narratives, but mostly they're not narratives. They're not telling stories. Um, maybe a few exceptions. There's, sec there, there's, there's some narrative sections of Yirmiyahu and Yechizkel, and, and but um, not Yeshaya so much. And the biblical critics, Lahavdil, have a field day with Yeshaya because Yeshaya is complex. And they posit that there were multiple Yeshayas that were all kind of grafted together in one single book. That's typical of the biblical, of biblical criticism, to see, to deny Kaddish Baruch Hu, to see the human hand. Um, and they, they, their, their argument in the, in the Tanakh in general, but Yeshaya particularly, they say, yeah, this was, has so many different styles and two two dominantly different opposing styles. No way was it written by the same author. Therefore, they posit at least two authors. 
our response, because part of what I'm doing here is trying to give you what is a Jewish way of looking at this against the Bible critics, and they say, well, I'm a Jewish Bible critic. You're a person of the Jewish faith who's adopted um, a non-Jewish approach to the Tanakh. Um, the problem is, is they can't imagine one singular person having different takes on life. But we recognize that life is plenty complicated, and like most of us, have different facets of our personality. We could be one way around certain people, and sometimes an entirely different personality in a different context. That's both good and bad. Part of the Navi's greatness, his godless, was exactly his complexity. And that's what Chazal understand about him. He is both simultaneously, what do they, what do the secular critics look at him? They see him on the one hand as a prophet of doom and despair. And it sometimes gets very, very low and sad, what the, what the Navi anticipates. He is one of the great Navim of talking about the, what the precursors to the Horba, what's leading up to the destruction of the temple. And of course, like any Navi, his purpose is not to be a doomsayer, but to warn the people, if you don't shape up, this is what's, what it's going to lead to. So he's definitely, he's got that downside that's inevitable. You can't get around it. Um, but he's also the Navi of Geula, of ultimate optimism. And from a secular perspective, they can't be the same person. But from a Jewish perspective, not only can they be the same person, because we look at life complexly, but, but absolutely the same person. The same person who can see the darkness, and I said a similar word by Kohelis, the person who can see the darkness, actually, if you got that down, has a complete perspective on all of life. That leads you to ultimate simcha. A sane, sober kind of simcha where you, where you see the way out. And Yeshaya had arguably the greatest oratorical gift. He could speak. And passionately and powerfully, why do you think Chazal chose so many sections of, of, of Yeshaya as, as Haftarah? It's precisely for this reason. He certainly foresaw the Horban, but he was able to look beyond the immediate troubles to the redemption. Um, we'll see later figures in, in history. Rabbi Akiva comes to mind. Uh, among, among many others, who, who can see the negative, but also the positive. And that's, that's, they're encouraging us to do the same. So some of the great, most sublime, uplifting passages are from Yeshaya. He describes, for example, um, he, says, he says that, Boi sagoi el goi cherev, a nation will not lift up sword in the end of days. You have to realize, in a world that's defined by bloodshed and war, as the ancient world was, the notion that there could be a time in history where nation will not lift up sword against nation, the peaceniks of the world owe a debt of gratitude to the Navim. One can arguably, if there was no Navi in Tanakh, maybe nobody would have had a vision of a world without, without swords. They're going to um, crush their swords and turn them into plowshares. Plowshares, literally, of the ground. In other words, take the weapons of destruction, of murder, and turn them into something of fertility, of growth, of ability to, to, to facilitate human life. That's, that's a ra immense. I mean, maybe we're so used to it, we, don't, we, don't, we can't appreciate the immense optimism behind the sentiment. But, that, but that's, that's unique to the Navim, and Yeshai really uh, epitomizes this idea. I saw a great, great bit. I can't resist it if I talk about crushing swords and turning them into plowshares. Somebody, somebody wrote a bit on um, the fact that Tel Aviv used to be the base of, Israeli, of Israel's army, um, but today they've moved down to the Negev. 
They've sold out some of the most expensive land holdings in all of Israel today, expensive real estate in Tel Aviv, um, and, they, and they've, they've moved down south. And so they talk about in real estate now that they've, um, they've taken their swords and they've turned them into timeshares. <laughs> I, I, when I read that, I laughed out loud. Um, anyway, Yeshai is the source of that one. He also writes, the, um, in the end of days, he anticipates a time in the world, in the world history, the gar ze'ev im keves, the uh, wolf will lie down next to the sheep, v'namer im gidi yerbats, and a leopard and a, and a goat will, will frolic around. Um, Woody Allen, latterly, Woody Allen would say that he also, in the end of days, uh, anticipates that the um, that the uh, sheep will lie down next to the wolf, only the sheep won't get much sleep. That's another great line. I love that one. You picture, you picture the cartoon version is they're like lying down in that like you know idyllic, uh, paradisic kind of like scene where the wolf and the, the the lamb are lying down to each other, but the but the image of the the, art, the cartoonist has the lamb sitting there like this. You know, like, <coughs> yeah. Uh, who were the who were the um, they got killed by a lion and then there was also another donkey was like standing next to the lion. Like, that was Ido Hanavi, Ido who anticipates the end of the Yeshaya. Yeah, that was Ido. Good, good that you're trying to remember all these things. Um, it's Yeshaya who anticipates. I just quoted the pasuk Uvau Haudim, who anticipates the return of all the exiles, including the lost tribes of Klal Yisrael in the end of days. Those are their prophecies of these people that are still. What's that? There are like a lot of prophecies in the Tanakh that are still unfulfilled. That's right. Yeah. That's one of the proofs that Chazal bring those as, as some of the proof texts for the Tliya Samesim. Since they have not yet been fulfilled, they will in the future days. I saw a prophecy has people to write out like 25 years. Things that happen today with prophecies. I can't hear. Sorry. Say it again. Do you try to correlate things that happen today with prophecies? Has people been doing that today? People try, and the post are a little bit wary of, of trying to correlate with prophecies. Bible codes would be an example of that, and we have to we have to use exceed, exceeding caution. Usually, if a guddle says it, you usually that's you're in good shape. Otherwise, I would I would be reluctant to accept such things because who knows? Who knows? It's it's, it's a stab in the dark. Uh, arguably, among the most famous of the prophecies of Yeshaya is his description of the heavenly court, and I've described this. You remember, um, in contrast with Yechezkel, who's called the Ben Ben Kfar, he's a, 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 a country bumpkin as it were, coming to the big city and describing things in vivid detail. So Yeshaya, who sees the same vision of prophecy, he goes to the heavenly court that was called the Maisim Kava, the Kisya Kavod of Kadesh Baruch Hu, and he recounts his experience um, in this worldly terms. He describes the, the angels, the Malachi Ashari, standing around. And where do we have this description? We actually read from Yeshaya every day when we, say, when we stand in Kedusha saying, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. As the angels say, holy, 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 we, we imitate the angels. Those words are lifted from the Nevuah of Yeshaya himself, who, uh, who describes um, Akadosh Baruch Hu in the most lofty terms. Now, um, he's still alive at the end of the, ru the rule of Chizkiyahu. Uh, and Chizkiyahu's son, Menashe, becomes the next king. He's credited initially with building the country's economy. Got to give a guy credit when he deserves credit, you know, so he builds up the money of the southern nation. Chazal, of course, 
don't really care about that. They tend not to give viscerally accomplishments such uh, emphasis. Um, he was 12 years old when his father died. He ruled the longest of all of Malchi Israel. I, I, I uh, misdated this the other day. It was not 53, it was 55 years. 55 years. You said that? Oh, very good. I said 53, so I was wrong. Good, thanks. I, didn't, I don't remember you said 55. Good for you. Um, his father gave him a good Torah education. Tried his best. Remember, his father didn't want to have Rav Shake and Menashe anticipating the worst. And it turned out, sadly, he was right. Uh, the worst is what came. Um, and we said the other day that sometimes even good parents fail to influence their children. You can do your best, but it's not in our hands. You have to daven a lot for your kids. Uh, he was impervious not only to his father's teachings, but to the rebukes of the great Navim of his time, to Nachlum Chabakuk. He did, as is described in the Psukim and Chazal, reinforce it, evil, extreme evil. He surpassed even his grandfather, his other side, his, from the other side, Ahav. Menashe surpassed in his evil even Ahab, his father's father. Referring Menashe did evil that was even greater than Ahab's evil. Like Ahab, he passed his own son through the fire. He shed blood of innocence uh, of, of in the thousands, including his own critics. Because people, remember the Nevi'im, are, are fearless and they criticize him. And they, they step up and they criticize him. And at one point, it's not clear to me historically when this happened. At one point, he even had slaughtered his fiercest critic, his other grandfather. Yeshaya himself was murdered by his evil grandson, who didn't want to hear it anymore. Thanks very much, Zadie. Don't, don't call us, we'll call you. Skamar Yavamos tells us that. Yeah. Who else didn't say that? I'm using a little a, a modern idiom in order to convey the idea. You'll forgive me for that, please. Okay. And Menashe is in Malachim, is Indeed, he's in Malachim, he's in too. Uh, Menashe reverts to Avodah Zarah in a major way. Not only does he serve Avodah Zarah, he brings it inside the Beis HaMikdash itself. He incites others to follow his lead. He brings back the worship of the Baal. I don't know if at this stage in trying to build our dramatic history, you know, the, the, the dramatic tension in history, but do you realize the ramifications of that? After centuries before, Yehu had firmly eradicated all of the Baal. Remember the whole story with Yehu assembling all worships of Baal in that one temple and destroying the temple so that there wouldn't be one remnant left? And Menashe brings it back. Wow is right. He's your namesake. I know, but I'm named after Menashe ben, 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 ben Yosef. And if that's the Kavana, so then that's, 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 the, that's the legacy. Right? It was, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the name, the name itself doesn't, doesn't get tarred and feathered just because one person misuses it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, 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 I don't aspire to this particular... Although, although, we're not done with Menashe yet. He's got, he's got certain uh, virtues we'll have to talk about. We'll talk, we'll get there. Yeah, 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 yeah. One, one thing at a time. Uh, He's a bad guy. And Menashe, finally, he reintroduces a Vodazara. He uh, reintroduces the Baal. And he goes back up to, it's almost painful for me to, to, to tell you this, goes back up to the high places and he rebuilds the Bamos. He brings back the Bamos. After his father successfully, after 12 generations, got rid of them. 
he goes and goes and fetches Micha's pestle that's been up and down all these times, and he brings that down too. It's like there's no uh, stone unturned if he can find trouble. Yeah, that's still there, though. It's still around. No, but like, he finds it. Chazal tell us this. He finds it. Even his father is this ready to Apparently not, right? You thought that we th- we thought he got it. Apparently, he didn't. Micha's pestle is from the way back in the times of the Shof team was that whole bizarre story of the Bilegish Megiva and they did this pestle initially. It's not meant for a Vodazar, but it's turned into that later on and it stands there the whole time. And Menashe brings it back. It's an idol. It's an idol of sorts. It was made with the money from Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the, 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 the widow and her son. Uh, his Avodazara is arguably the biggest taint on this entire period. And even when he's gone, it remains. And it leaves a terrible legacy. Um, you know, Ahav and Beit Ahav didn't leave a legacy. When they, when they all died and the, the dogs licked their blood, so that was it. That was the end. But not Menashe. He, he, he lingers. Now, um, we've said the bad. We should say a little bit of the not so bad. To his credit, he never persecuted Yereshem. It was if you wanted to be from in those days, you wanted to go about your business and serve a Kaddish Baruch Hu, you could do that. He didn't persecute you before that. Uh, certainly making him heads, as, as bad a figure as he was then, he, he's heads and tails superior to the later Hellenizers that we're going to meet in the Second Temple period. No question that, the, that he was superior. He himself even kept most of, most of the mitzvahs. I mean, he broke the big ones. There's a Gemara where, like, uh, I'm going there. We're going there. You can't talk about Menashe Melech without without describing that Gemara. The Gemara tells us three came with craftiness. Three came with Gemara and Sanhedrin who who tried to outsmart Hashem, as it were, uh, in the Gemara. Anybody know this Gemara? They're identified as Cain, Esav, and Menashe Hamelech. Where is it? It's uh, Kuf Aleph Amud Beis in Sanhedrin. each one came with their own kind of uh, rationalization and sophisticated, clever way of trying to get around the Kodesh Baruch Hu's laws. Oh, said Cain, you didn't say we can't murder, and like that. So Menashe, what did he do? Um, he was devious. First, he davened to the gods, small g, the pagan deities, and later he davened to Hashem. Get what he did? If Hashem wouldn't answer his tefillahs, it would have seemed as if Hashem, as it were, was powerless against the idols. It was a lose-lose proposition to Kaddish Baruch Menashe was doing what we call picture book example of Chil Hashem. But, the Gemara that I think Yolan had in mind, you'll tell me if this is what you had in mind, uh, one blot late, one daf later in, 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 on Kuf, Kuf Beis Amud Beis, um, Ravashi, find Ravashi at the end of the Babylonian Talmudic period, Ravashi is teaching his students, and he's teaching a very technical sugya about where, when we make hamotzi, we're supposed to break the bread, and he's stymied. He doesn't know exactly the ideal place to break the bread. So, he, has, he goes to sleep that night, and none other than Menashe HaMelech himself comes to him in a dream, and he shows them it was, the place to break it is in the choicest part of the bread, the nicest part, because we want to appreciate a Kaddish Baruch Hu's bracha, and you do that when you, by, the, by the point in the bread that uh, you can appreciate most. Now, the Gemara says, Rav Ashi knew where that was. 
It's not that he didn't know where it was. He, excuse me. He knew that it was supposed to be the choice of spark. What he lacked, the information he lacked, was actually when you have a piece of a loaf of bread, where is it technically? And even that, Menashe knew. And in the dream, Menashe explains exactly the halacha. It's where the, um, the bread becomes most baked into a crust. The crusty part of the bread, the crisp part there, that's where you should break the the bread he teaches, and they have a whole halachic discussion to the point that the Gadol Hador, one of the greatest figures of all time, Ravashi, is utterly uh, awed by Menashe. And he says at the end of the conversation, if you're so learned, you know Torah cold on the level that you know it, why were you so foolish as to worship idolatry? What an idiotic pastime. Famous, famous sugya to which Menashe answers him in the dream, you don't know what it was to serve idolatry. If you'd have been there, you'd have lifted the bottom of your garment and run after me to worship. Meaning, and Rashi explains, the lifting of the bottom of the, of, of the hem of your garment was to show you would even publicly humiliate yourself. You'd be so head over heels uh, besides yourself in lust to serve idolatry. You don't know what that is. And I'll have to say, it's just a brief introduction. I'm not getting into this right now. We'll do this in a couple of weeks. But we're, we're closing in on one of the most important turning points of all of history when they get rid of this. There used to be something called a Yetzir Hara, a desire for idolatry, that was so overwhelming. It's one of the reasons we can't really appreciate these previous generations uh, that dominated their lives. And at a very important uh, intersection, uh, milestone in, in history, um, that, was dis that was contained. Not destroyed, as I was about to say, but contained and suppressed until today we no longer have the desire for idolatry that they used to have. And that gives Menashe's words even greater meaning. He's literally saying to Ravashi, you don't know what I endured, what kind of taiva tempted me and why I couldn't overcome it. Um, and if you've been there and you had that kind of taiva, you too would have succumbed to idolatry. This insight... What kind of taiva can possibly be? You know it's wrong. Picture the taiva that people have for, for other, let's say, um, euphemistically stuff. I don't have to explain. Um, yeah, multiply that several thousand you. times over and you have a shadow of what it was like to have this taiva for idolatry. Okay, but how do you say <laughs> other avails that, that, that you get some source of benefit from? Right? Then I understand how you can, for example, idolatry, what possible benefit do you get from it? Right. Go look at uh, well, it. All it does is waste time. Right, right. Um, what benefit does a person get from idolatry? It starts, we've talked about this, I think it may have been before you joined us, Daniel, but it starts, if you remember, the Dorshal Anosh Talukhaos Gedola, all the way back in the third generation, they started making a mistake in their genuine desire to serve Hashem. They started going up and worshiping Him, and they got sidetracked when they got to the constellations. And literally, they figured that the, the heavenly entourage, the stars around Hashem, you could worship Hashem by worshiping them. And one thing led to the other, when you know the whole equation was forgotten, and yeah, instead of worshiping Hashem at all, they wound up worshiping the stars. Yeah, but what, what, what's critical Hashem, in this, what's critical in this, is at the core of idolatry is the deep-seated human need to connect with the Creator of the universe. But that's hard because the Gadol Baruch Hu is abstract, and to go all that distance requires a certain sophistication, a certain abstraction that most people lack, and so they go off base. 
And when they go off base, they go spectacularly off base. And they take the power of the human neshama and they channel it for the wrong. And it's a power. We don't have this anymore. That's why it's hard for us to understand. Yeah, but, yeah, but he wasn't going off base. He completely went. He knows Hashem is here and he's going to serve another idol. That has nothing to do with him. He knows this. So what happened was by this generation, it had become so perverted, so corrupt, where they had righteous person followed by wicked person, righteous and wicked. Remember Ahaz, then Chizkiah and, and Menashe. There, there was it, almost as it were in the ether, in the in the environment in the atmosphere. There were these um, positive, uh, positive influences and negative influences. And when a person went off, he didn't just go off; he went spectacularly off. And that's Menashe's example for us. And that's what he's saying to Avashi. Even somebody your gadol hador. And you yourself would have been swept up potentially. Not necessarily, because we see that some great Siddiqui, like his Gawa's own father, was clearly not swept up in it. But potentially, you would have picked up your garment and run after this. The next day, Ravashi goes back to his shear, explains this discussion with the students, and he says, he says, we will now begin the Mishnah with our three chaverim. He spoke initially in pejorative terms negatively about Yeravam, Achav, and Menashe, the subject of the Mishnah, and now he speaks about them with respect, understanding that with all of their evil, they were also um, immense Talmudic Chachamim. So how can they be held accountable? Because even with all that desire, Hashem still gave them, as He gives us, the Chirachov, she's freedom of choice. And so you're still held accountable. But some rabbis today would say that we're not held accountable for desires of ours today because like, we're working on them and we're like in a generation where it's hard. And you're saying that that generation is even... I'm not sure you're quoting those rabbis precisely. I would want you to get your source. I don't think it's true. We are always held accountable. Akadosh Baruch Hu gives us a certain benefit. Yeah, the whole concept of a tinok shenishka, which most people are today, a, a, a captive babe, which is a halachic category, people who are just ignorant. And even sometimes practicing Orthodox Jews, frankly, are also ignorant. There's so much rampant ignorance out there. A woman who doesn't cover her hair, but she considers herself, herself from. Usually, most of those women are not doing it lahachis, even though they're, they're blatantly going against halacha, but they're doing it out of their ignorance. They think it's okay. Go re-educate them. Good luck. That's just an ancient generation. So those kind of people, we, that's called Tino Shanish, but Akadosh Baruch Hu, as it were, gives them some leverage, gives them some leeway. But it doesn't make it right. Let me, let me round that. I want to do today all of Menashe, so I know he raises lots of deep questions. Unless it's something really pressing, you think? Let, let, me, let, me, let me continue. Eventually, Menashe, in the midst of his rule, will be taken by Babylon, who's the em emerging empire of the world, and imprisoned, and abused, and treated so badly, he comes back to himself and <coughs> contemplates making tshuva. <coughs> he knows better, he got a Torah education from his father, certainly had role models in the family. At that point, he dies for tshuva, and the Yalkut Shimoni tells us, in heaven, the angels are looking at one of history's great, great, great villains, and they say, they, they, they make a motion, as it were, to Kaddish Baruch Hu that they want to close the heavenly window so his tefillah can't enter. They want to block out his tefillah because they know Kaddish Baruch Hu, one of the ways we refer to Kaddish Baruch Hu is harachaman, the compassionate one, and they don't feel that Menashe is deserving of that compassion. They want to close the window to tefillah. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu responds and says, if I don't accept Menashe's tefillah, the door will be closed before all potential balei tshuva. 
I'm going to be setting a precedent that will, that, will, uh, that will turn many other people away. So in a compromise, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as it were, and don't take any of this literally, but there's some truth in everything going on here, HaKadosh Baruch Hu makes a tiny hole under the very Kisei HaKavod, under that Maisim uh, HaKavod image that Menashe, Menashe's grandfather just described to us. He makes a tiny hole so that it's not exactly welcoming, encouraging Menashe's tshuva, but at least there's a, there's a chance. There's, a, there's, there's, there's one bit of supplication and, and, it, and it indicates that Menashe's tefillah comes through. Menashe responds, Is din v'is dayan. There's, there's, there's justice and there's a judge. He makes tshuva. Eventually he returns, restores his monarchy. He removes the Avodazara. It's not a complete tshuva. He doesn't destroy the Elilim. The, the gods themselves exist. They're just not being worshipped, at least not for the time being. And eventually they're going to ensnare his, ensnare his own son, Amon. And there's... One of the more interesting and perplexing machlokos that we find in all of Shas, also in Gemara and Sanhedrin, there's a machlokos, not, not Lamaisa, but a machlokos still, whether or not his tshuva is accepted. According to Tanakama, his tshuva was not ultimately accepted. According to Rabbi Yehuda, he has a chilek in Olam Haba. He is of the seven that we've been talking about, the last that we haven't yet met, who are, are cited in the Mishnah, and according to and it, the Mishnah clearly adopts Tanakama's position, despite his tshuva. The Pasuk tells us in Divrei Yomi, Menasha led the nation of Yehuda and all of the inhabitants of Yerushalayim astray. Wasn't, clearly wasn't all of them, but um, he is the beginning of the end. His, the, the, the activities of Menasha that he sets in motion start the snowball into, into the, the, uh, the machine that eventually destroys the second temple, the first temple, even though we're going to see some bright lights along the way, uh, but he basically, the momentum has begun. He leaves a legacy after his life in the guise of a certain group of people that are referred to in the Pesukim and by Chazal as the Am Haaretz. In our use of the term today, we refer to an ignoramus as an Am Haaretz, the, literally the salt of the earth, the people of the land. But in the Pesukim here, the Am Haaretz are a clear, unmistakable reference to the people influenced by Menashe's wickedness who follow in his ways. They are the poorest, the least learned, the most subject to the Goyesha influence around them. Uh, they would remain in Eretz Israel even after the destruction of the temple. They'll be around during Gedalia's days and be involved in that whole story, that whole debacle around Gedalia. Um, while the rest of the Jews, the more exalted Jews, were the ones taken cap uh, into captivity in Bavel. In um, Menashe dies. He, uh, he's replaced by his similarly, not quite as wicked, but basically wicked son, Amon. Uh, two years he's king. He sins, the Pasuk says, Lahachis. You know, you know what Lahachis means? There's a Mumar Leteavon, a guy who says, I love Hashem, Torah is true, and wow, that Kentucky Fried Chicken looks good. You know the type? He's, he's a guy who can't control his desires. That's most people. Then there's the guy who, Mumar Lahachis, he's angry. We're going to see someone who's really angry. And he, he sins because he wants to needle a Kaddish Baruch Hu, as it were. And, and that's, that's Menashe initially, and that's certainly his son Amon. He takes the tselem, the image that his great-grandfather that his, uh, great Ahaz built, 
and he restores it, he puts it back in the Heichal, Heichal being the Kodesh, outside the Holy of Holies. He does Gilu Arayos, acts of immodesty publicly, he burns the Sefer Torah. Finally, his own servants conspire, because Klal Yisrael is still essentially good, and they, uh, they rise up and they murder him. It's only two years, and when Amon dies, his son, Yoshiahu, is a eight-year-old child, and he begins his reign and rules for 31 years in Yerushalayim, and his story is quite spectacular. It's also spectacularly tragic, but uh, it's, it's a major story and certainly worthy of, of, of a share. I'll take a question. Somebody had something now? Yeah, truly. Really? Is, is there a difference if someone says does it despite Hashem? So you're saying that he believes in Hashem, he's doing because I believe in the Torah, I want to be a Russia. And like, what about someone who's just like does it despite his parents? I think the guy's doing it despite his parents. Is, I know, is, I know people, like, we're talking we're talking as if they're like two uh, exclusive categories. Would probably a better description. It's more like a spectrum where people fall somewhere on the line in between. A person rebelling. In, against his parents, on some level is rebelling, rebelling against Hashem. After all, that's why Kibbut um, Aim is in the first set of the Luchos, which are all binin on the Makom. The five, first five mitzvahs and the Ten Commandments are all really between people and Hashem. Because when you, you can't bring a Kaddish Baruch a glass of water, therefore when you bring your mother a glass of water, you're honoring Hashem. Hashem, as it were, doesn't walk into the room, but when your parents walk into the room, you are honoring Hashem. So a person who's rebelling against his parents, on some level, there's an aspect of rebelling against Kaddish Baruch Hu. I developed that more thoroughly in my Kibbutz Amshir, but, but on some level, you know, the child's first notion of authority comes to his parents. So when his mother nurtures him and, and comes, to the, comes to him in the, in the middle of the night, the, the child learns the notion of Rahmanus, of Harachaman, from the mother. Uh, just wait till your father comes home. The father's first notion, in theory, I mean, these are stereotypes, but there's a lot to them. The first notion of deen, of justice, comes through the father. You know, just be, you know, be careful of your father, kind of a thing. If a, if, if, if a parent is reasonably good, there's no such thing as a perfect parent, but reasonably good, a child can, can develop and develop a natural amuna once they learn about a Kaddish Baruch Hu in more abstract terms. They say, oh, the idea that I see that's true about my mom, my dad, in imperfect terms, those in perfect ways apply to Kaddish Baruch Hu. So that's where, that's where I would say that there's, there's, there is some aspect of rebellion against the Kaddish Baruch Hu, but that's still not exactly Lahachis. Somebody who stands, and um, I think in our next class we'll meet a figure by the name of Yehoyakim. Whew, he's bad. Yehoyakim, we're going to see, is um, probably the, the, the poster boy for Lahachis. For doing something to, to, to deliberately get a Kaddish Baruch Hu, it's maybe it's even beyond our vocabulary because we really don't have this today. Most people today really are more Tino Chinishba. They don't know what they're doing. They're so out of it. They're so ignorant of halacha that they don't. They they're not on the level of Menashe and Amon and Yoyakim. And we'll we'll see more of that next week.